All right, so we have been running through um, this little theme called the most important things, and it's kind of all the big questions of our faith and the foundations that we follow and believe and kind of the really important things actually of following and being a disciple of Jesus. So these are sort of the non-negotiables um, that we rest on when it comes to our relationship with God and what kind of frames what we believe and how we relate and walk with God. And uh, we've done some really nice ones. Um, you know, we've done like being disciples and like intimacy with God and having been saved from our sin and saved into family and church and a lot of great ones. And today, this is one that I've sort of been approaching with a little bit of fear and trembling because um, it's a tough one, actually. It's this big question of like judgment, heaven, and hell. And that sounds so heavy, but actually I think God has set it up so beautifully for us today because so much of today has actually been about his love and his kindness and his goodness. But it does create an interesting question. Um, you know, so, so we're going to answer some practical things. So like, is hell real? And who goes there is another question we're going to ask. But then there's the difficult one of how can this loving, kind God that we've been singing about how can he send people to hell? And does he? And we're going to answer some of that. So, you know, I, uh, I got a traffic fine this week. I know, it was really bad. I wasn't speeding. Um, I forgot to put new license plates on my car, so fairly innocent. But, you know, those of you who drive, there are two types of fines is the one you know you're not going to pay because they stuck it to your window and no one kind of made you and you never signed for it. And they're not really enforceable because they have to first actually issue a summons. And anyway, then there's a kind you sign for. Okay, the one you sign for is the one you're going to pay. This one I signed for. So I'm going to pay it. Because if I don't, I know that there's a penalty attached. I can pay 500 bucks now. Or I can ignore it and go to jail. Okay, so there's a very real consequence to my action in this thing. And, um, you know, hopefully when I really start to understand law and responsibility, I won't get the fine in the first place. That's kind of what I'm working towards, but not fully there yet, just being vulnerable. Um, but yeah, so, so there is this idea that consequence is an essential part of rules and regulations and law. Um, you know, I want, I, want a new, it's, I want a new iPhone. Why do I not just walk into the iStore and grab one and walk out? Someone give me an idea. Why not? Hey, it's stealing. Okay, so the law says I mustn't. Okay, but so what? So there's a law that says I mustn't steal. If I break the law, there's a consequence. Okay, so law without consequence is empty. And we understand this. Until it comes to God for some reason, then we struggle a bit. So let's quickly answer the first one. Is hell real? Um, so Matthew 25, verse 31 to 34, says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, so this is the second coming, when Jesus comes back, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, 
and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Who wants to be on that side? Okay, sounds epic. I want to be with the sheep. Okay, so the next passage. Uh, okay, sorry, I gave you two others, but I'll read them quickly. Uh, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But there's a but. Then he will say to those on his left, these are the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous will go into eternal life. Okay, so I know that sounds very heavy, but what I wanted to do was just answer that first question, is hell real? That to me says it is. Okay, eternal conscious torment. Sounds a little like home affairs, but worse. And so this makes it clear that hell is very, very real. Um, you know, a later, a later passage, uh, Matthew 13, verse 41, I didn't give you this, but it says, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. But the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Okay, that last bit is listen, pay attention. If you have ears, hear what I'm saying. There is heaven and there is hell. Okay, so it's very real. It's a very, very real place. It is very biblical. The Bible spends a lot of time actually talking about hell. So hell is real. We've established that. Who goes there? It seems to say that sinners go there. So we're going to dive a little later into that because I got a traffic fine. I sinned. Am I going to hell now? Is there some hope? Is there a chance? Hopefully, because I'm up here with the microphone. Um, but we'll answer that question later. Okay, so now we get to this question. There is hell, and there is this loving God. How then does a loving God send people to hell? And God is loving. So 1 John 4 verse 16, it says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Who is God? God is love. He defines himself as love. So we have established there is hell. We have established that God is loving. So how do we balance these things? So as a parent, I have learned the value of consequence as a tool to train my children up in righteousness because many times I say to them, my boy, please don't do that thing. He looks at me and says, I see your rule. Is there penalty attached? When I attach penalty, he's like, okay, now I'm invested. There's something in this for me. And um, so we're going to talk a little bit about 
slight detour, but about discipline. Um, because I want to make it clear that even in God, there is consequence attached to action, but that it is balanced by love. So Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 6. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So as a dad, I relate to this a lot. I get no joy whatsoever out of disciplining my children. I get no joy out of punishing them. But I know that if my kids don't learn that when I open the gate, they cannot just run out into the street because they'll get killed by a car. I know that I've got to teach them that boundary. And so because I love them, I discipline them to follow that simple rule for the sake of their lives. And that's a small one. I know one day my children are going to go out into the world and they're going to work for a boss and they're going to have to pay tax and they're going to have to be on time and they're going to have to do all these things. And so as a loving parent, because I love them and I want them to actually live the best lives that they possibly can, I discipline and I train them. But the heart of it is love. Proverbs 3 verse 12 says, Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father disciplines the son he delights in. Guys, I've trained my children, well, two-thirds of them. The last one's slowly coming along. But I watch actually now the amount of joy and delight I have in my boys because of the training I've done in them and the obedience they've started to learn. And I see that taking root in them. And for me, it's such a celebration that they actually are learning to submit and be obedient to me because I know that they can now submit and be obedient to God. That is actually what I'm aiming at. I don't just want to make my life easier as a parent. I'm actually trying to train them to one day listen to their father, like their forever father, as I am learning to listen to my forever father because he is love. And he needs to train and discipline them. They need to know how to follow that. And so, you know, it's quite clear that in God, our actions and consequences linked to that and his love can all coexist in one same setting. But the problem is that if we don't listen and we don't let his discipline change us, it says, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. If I don't let that actually change me and train me, then the consequences become eternal. If my kids don't listen to stay by my side when we walk in the road and they run into the street, they could encounter eternal consequence. They could die. And so sometimes, even as a loving dad, I will meet out a little bit of pain now for the sake of an eternity later. And uh, they don't always understand it in the moment, but they are getting there slowly. And so, but it's out of love. It's out of my position as a loving dad. So Romans 6 verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so people always ask this question, how can a loving God send people to hell. 
So on the one hand, yes, there is consequence, and that's kind of linked to discipline. And discipline is always linked actually at redemption. This is always God trying to bring us back to redemption. But there's some rules out there that are just rules. Okay? And one of those is in John. It's a beautiful passage which says that in God, like God is light, and there is no darkness in him. And so if we are in Christ, we can't have darkness in us. So our sin and God's perfection can never in themselves coexist. Okay. And so when it comes to this question of a loving God, he's also a just God. And there is consequence and penalty for sin, which is death. And when they talk about death, I am going to die. That is the natural progression of my mortal meat and bones. But my spirit will go on into eternity if I'm found in Christ in that moment. But if not, I cannot coexist with him if I have darkness in me. And the mistake we make often when wrestling with this question of this loving God who sends people to hell is that we misunderstand, actually, Jesus in his first and his second coming. So in the beginning, the world was perfect. We had perfect communion with God. We used to walk around the garden with him. We had everything we needed for life and godliness and intimacy with him. And then sin enters, and it kind of messes up the picture. And we're then all born into the sinful world. We're literally born with it in us, in our DNA. And God hates this, actually. God looks down at the world, and he says, you know what? I love you guys. I don't want to actually have you go to hell. But there is darkness. There is sin in you which cannot coexist with my perfection and my holiness and my glory. And I hate that separation. It kills him. And so he sends his son Jesus to say, you know what? I love you. I love you enough that I'm going to make a way. So that this consequence, this eternal separation from me doesn't have to happen anymore. And so we get this beautiful passage in scripture john three sixteen. we all know this one um i wish we all knew the next four verses as well because they're beautiful but it says for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son you see that he loved us he loved this world he loved the people when it says god loved the world he doesn't really care about like the highways and the buildings it's the people he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Jesus did not come here to point out our sin, to judge us, to condemn us, to separate us. He came to cover all of that. So when we say, how does a loving God send people to hell? The answer is, he actually tried his very best not to. He made a way that we didn't have to. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness 
instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that they may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So this loving God sends his son so that actually we don't have to experience hell. We get something different. So the question is, is hell real? Yes. How does a loving God send people to hell? Well, he made a way that we don't have to. He actually paid a price so that we wouldn't have to face the natural penalty of our lives and our actions and our sinful natures. Who goes to hell? Well, it tells us who doesn't. Everyone who believes in Jesus. So in my analogy, thankfully, yes, I sinned. Got a traffic fine. Broke the law. But I'm in Jesus. He died for me. I have accepted this offer of his so that I don't have to face eternal consequence anymore. So that was the first time he came, but he is coming again. And that is that, second, that first passage we read in Matthew about he's going to come and he's going to separate. He at that time is going to come and judge the world. And on that day, none of us are going to be without excuse. We're going to be naked in front of him, everything exposed. And for me, on that day, I'll be like, yes, I was a sinner. I deserve death. I know I did. But Jesus, you died for me, and I took that offer. And I'm actually now covered by your blood. When God looks at me, he's going to see his son. And that was the whole point. God is going to say, you were trapped in your sinfulness. It was leading you to death. I made a way for you. I gave you a way out. Please, did you take it? And if we did, he's going to say, man, come. Come back face to face. Like, welcome home. But for those who didn't, they're going to be without excuse. And there's not going to be this argument of like, oh God, I thought you were loving and kind. He's like, I am. I so loved you that I sent my son who was perfect and blameless. Pay the price for your sins so that you could have what you don't deserve and so that you wouldn't get what you do deserve. And so, when it comes to this question of God, yes, he's loving, but he is also just and he has perfect understanding and he knows what happens in our hearts. And actually, a healthy fear of God can save your life. For my boys, they know I love them. But they also fear me a little bit. And they need to. They need to know that I love them and that I'm strong and that I will protect them. But also that when I speak, they must listen. Because if they don't, as a loving father, there's going to be discipline and consequence. And so allowing, even in this life, just a little quick detour, like we sometimes struggle so hard with this thing of discipline. And sometimes like when God disciplines us, it's hard. It is not nice. But actually I know that he's doing it because there's a little bit of pain he's meeting out now. 
so that I can live with an eternity of intimacy and closeness with Him. I would rather take that little bit of pain now and let it change me so that on that day when I stand in front of Him, I am different. So that's the heavy part. Hell. But you know, the great thing is that there is something else called heaven which is also a very real place. This guy, Randy Alcorn, who I quite like, and he wrote something amazing, which I'm going to find here. He wrote this. The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life and world is the closest they will ever come to hell. For unbelievers, this is the closest they'll ever come to heaven. Okay. But seriously, guys, this world, the hardest thing you've ever endured. If you're in Christ, this is the closest you will ever get to eternal torment and suffering. It, like, it only gets better from here. I love that. Um, but anyway, let's get into heaven. So let's get into heaven. It's good. Also, let's get into the topic. Um, so what is heaven like and where is it? Um, so when the Bible describes heaven, it speaks about two things. It uses these two beautiful pictures. It speaks about a city and it speaks about a garden. And uh, so Revelations 21, verse 1 to 3, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Get this picture. It's this like celebration that's about to happen. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Guys, the point of heaven is that God is there. That is the whole, the dwelling place of God is now with his people. What does that sound like? When last was the dwelling place of God with his people? Garden of Eden. Hey? But I love that. It's that the dwelling place of God is now going to be with his people. He's going to be with his people. He's going to be their God. And I love how the Bible goes into great length in describing like the beauty and splendor of heaven. And a lot of that language I don't understand. Like, are the roads literally gold? Do I have sunglasses? Because it's going to be really bright and I struggle with glare as is. But I mean, I'm like am to figure that out one day. I'm going to go and see it. It's going to be exciting. Um, but you know, anyone who's been here for like the last month will know my favorite scripture that I'm just camped on at the moment with this John 17 verse 3, which says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. The whole point of eternal life and eternity is going to be to know God. And where hell is going to be the eternal separation from God and anything good, heaven is going to be the eternal knowing of God. Like he's going to be there. We're going to see him. We're going to walk around with him. We're going to spend time with him. 
So it's the city. He's going to remake it. Um, but it's also a garden paradise. So Revelation 22, verse 1 to 3, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of water and life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. So the Garden of Eden was perfect. Adam and Eve had everything. The ground literally just gave up its fruit to them. You know, they worked, but it was easy work. Like after the fall, God cursed the ground actually. He says like, now it's going to be hard. In heaven, that's all gone. Everything is remade perfect. All the little things in this world and life and struggle is going to be gone. That curse is going to be lifted and it's all going to be remade. There's going to be no traffic. No petrol price increase. It's going to be beautiful. Like the curse is going to be lifted and it's going to be this world again, but perfection with God for eternity. And I love it that the story of salvation actually comes full circle. Genesis starts with a river and a tree. Revelations kind of brings it back with the same language that invokes this picture of the Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve made imperfection unashamed, walking around naked, free of sin. I don't know if we're actually going to be naked in heaven, but, um, but the idea is that there's going to be no shame. There's going to be no sin. It's going to be incredible. And so for us as Christians, you know, this idea of heaven, it's beautiful. Is heaven real? Yes. The Bible tells me it is. It's a very real place. Who goes there? Same question we asked about hell. Well, those who believe in Jesus. Those who've allowed him to change them, to pay the penalty, who've taken the offer, who've stepped into his love. And what's it going to be like? I don't know, man. The Bible's got some beautiful language. A lot of it I don't really understand, if I'm dead honest. But there are a few things I do know, that heaven is going to be home. I feel like when we get there, it's going to be strangely familiar. It talks about a new heaven and a new earth. I think they're going to be echoes of what we see here, but perfection without the curse. I think we're going to get there and we're going to be like, I sort of recognize this. But man, what I saw on earth was only a shadow of it. A great um, illustration supplied by Luke Halley was this illustration of a seal raised in the desert can kind of walk. You guys seen a seal walk on land? They do this kind of, like they can move, they can do some stuff. Imagine that seal steps out of the desert into the ocean and suddenly, like have you seen a seal get off land, they're like awkward and they're waddling and they get in the water and there are these like sleek little bullet things like cruising around. They're like, you can look at it like that is what that thing was made for. Like who dumped it in the desert? That was dumb. Now suddenly it's like living like it was meant to. And that's going to kind of be what it's like for us. The Bible even says that we are strangers and sojourners. We're foreigners here, actually, as Christians. 
This is not our home. This is kind of the desert. And how many of you get that? How many of you sit and like you think about life, you have this niggling sort of feeling in the back of your mind that this is not it. This is not, like I'm not, I'm not living the life I should. I'm not like, I don't feel like I'm kind of, there's more. There must be more. This can't just be it. Even when you're like fully, guys, like for myself, even when I'm like fully submitted and obedient and like convinced I'm walking everything God's called me to, there's still this little nagging feeling at the back of my mind that like, this is cool, but this is not it. God, I know, I feel awkward. It's like my shirt's one size too small or something. And uh, again, I'm going to lean on some Randy Alcorn here. But he says, nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen TV, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii, some new Air Force Ones. What we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy us. Who relates to that? Hey, I didn't know until I read it, and I was like, yes, this is what's wrong with me. This is why I've been vaguely like itchy for the last 37 years. It's like I'm not actually built for this place. And so heaven is going to be for us. It's going to be home. It's also going to be God with us. We're going to be home, but man, like Jesus is going to be there. John, I think, yeah, John 14, verse 1 to 3, it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to make and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. It's this beautiful picture of Jesus is gone, like he's in heaven. He's preparing these rooms in his father's house and then he's coming and he's fetching us and he's not sending us. He's taking us with him. He's like, come. We're going to dad's house and I've got a room for you and you're going to live with me. Heaven is where God is. Heaven is where we're going to be. And it's going to be home. It's also going to be the promise fulfilled. What do we do between now and that day? Because there's something beautiful coming. But also I'm going to work tomorrow. What do I do in this time between now and when he comes? The Bible paints this beautiful picture of that day is going to be a promise fulfilled. When I see him face to face, that beautiful worship song we're singing. It's like that's the day I look forward to, great anticipation. And so the Bible describes our experience on earth like a really, really long engagement. 
which I wouldn't advise. Don't torture yourselves, guys. But the book of Revelations describes this time when Jesus is going to come and he's going to take us to him and the world is going to be made new and it's called the marriage feast of the Lamb. That is intimate language. Marriage is intimate. And so Jesus, in coming to earth, in dying on a cross, in allowing us to get saved, in filling us with his spirit, has made this pledge to us. He's like, you are now mine. I'm putting something on your finger. That is the whole point of an engagement ring. I remember as a young single guy walking around. Really, I was like, oh, she's nice. Ah, she's got a ring. That's, ah, okay. That one's off the cards. I remember, I was like, it was, I was like, cool, I know, she's taken. She belongs to someone else. And that is Jesus. Like, he puts his ring, he puts himself on our hearts, and he's like, you're mine. I'm coming for you. There's a feast. There's a wedding that's going to happen. And I'm coming back for you. And our time here on earth is that. Jesus has pledged himself to us. And he doesn't break engagements. He goes all the way. He fulfills it. And he is coming back for us. And we had this picture a while ago that we preached on here about the church being a bride and how does that work. And it is this idea of us making and keeping ourselves beautiful for him, keeping ourselves pure for him, unadulterated, unswayed by the other loves and affections of the world. We don't let anything compete with the love we have for him because he's given us a promise. Is that easy? No. Requires great discipline, great restraint, great trust in him. But again, the best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For the Christian, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. And for unbelievers, it is the closest they'll come to heaven. Who goes there? Do you know Jesus? Has he got your heart? Have you given him your life? Have you taken that gateway that God in love provided to heaven? and away from hell? Have you stepped through that door and taken that offer? Do you allow him to shape and change you? Do you take his discipline? Are you keeping yourself pure for him? Not that you don't get it wrong. I get it wrong. Often I'm like, how is it by nine o'clock every morning I've somehow sinned? Like, whether it's in attitude or grumpy, like, but I fight. And I try, and I let him shape me. God is a loving God. His heart is that none of us would go to hell. So he made a way. His heart is that all of us would come home. Home. Heaven. With him. Forever. Forever. 